This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. People are sitting in jail for months without being convicted of anything. It's because they're not mentally competent to stand trial and they need evaluation and treatment. Well, Colorado's plan to fix this problem is, quote, scattershot, according to an independent evaluation. The state is in the midst of its fourth lawsuit in a decade over this issue. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry has been all over the story for months. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. Before we dig into what the independent monitors found, what does the state say is the problem here? Well, the problem for the state is volume, or this is what they've been telling the legislature and everyone else. When someone is arrested and lawyers suspect this person's mentally ill, they can request a competency evaluation. Now, the state's in charge of those. When someone is found incompetent to stand trial, the state's responsible for treating them ahead of time so they can assist in their own defense. And the state says in recent years, way more of these evaluations have been requested. And that means way more people need treatment. And the result is it's falling farther and farther behind. And as you said, Ryan, scores of mentally ill people are sitting in jail for months without being convicted of anything. So this could be a dimension of the broader mental health problem, if you believe this Mm -hmm. state. Uh, That's their framing. But now we have these court orders. Ordered observers, these watchdogs sort of weighing in. Do they agree that the system just has more people needing care than it can handle? Well, yes and no. The experts say Colorado doesn't have nearly enough mental hospital beds, mental health hospital beds, sorry, but that um, adding just more beds to solve this problem is the wrong way to do it. Why would that be the wrong way? Seems like it would go a long way towards helping. Well, I think it would help a little. It's it's a little like trying to solve traffic gridlock by just expanding highways, right? Like more lanes are important, but there needs to be deeper thoughts and conversations about transit and other solutions. The Independent Monitor applauds the Department of Human Services for trying to secure funding from the legislature to get more beds. I think they think they need more beds. But they should also be thinking outside of this expensive inpatient hospital setting to solve this problem. Okay, so not just inpatient, maybe more drop-in mental health centers, things like that? Yeah, exactly. The report says the state needs to be expanding community-based help so that people who aren't sick enough to require an inpatient bed, I mean, a lot of people with mental illness don't necessarily need to be hospitalized. They could be restored to competency in the community. Mm. Then the sickest people can go to the hospital beds. And I think the independent monitor just wants the state to be more creative. And that also has an added bonus of being more efficient and cheaper and getting people out of jail more quickly. On the subject of hospital beds, if I remember one of the state's solutions was to stop admitting members of the general public to Colorado's mental health hospitals, basically holding all of those beds for people in the criminal justice system exclusively. Where does Mm -hmm. that decision stand? Well, let's back up for a second. This started because the state's been under such pressure to get this problem solved. Remember, the state is being sued in federal court. And this judge in the case, I've covered a few of the hearings, she seems to be getting really annoyed about how long this is taking to solve the problem. And there are also some daily fines looming if the state doesn't solve this, get these people out of jail. So in December, the state announced this decision more as an act of desperation, and it immediately got a ton of criticism. The county mental health clinics were appalled. These these clinics have designated beds at Fort Logan. So if they're treating someone and someone is in a real crisis, they can they can maybe get them at least on a list to get into Fort Logan. Right. And those options then became closed. Yes. Those beds went away. Some juvenile beds went away. I talked to a woman who runs a mental health center in Sterling, and she basically said this is just a totally cruel cutoff of something they desperately need more of. And the legislature's Joint Budget Committee, which, you know, these are pretty powerful people. They determine funding for all state agencies. They were really annoyed. I covered this hearing right before Christmas in December, where state officials were basically yelling 
um, getting yelled at. Sorry, the state officials were getting yelled at by lawmakers for this decision, and the, the state didn't really back down. Okay, are they sticking with it, this idea of reserving mental health hospital beds exclusively for the criminal justice system? Well, things have changed a little. There's a new attorney general who's in charge of defending the state in all of this. And I think the disability advocates who are suing the state thought that that means that the whole approach from you know by the state would be different, kind of a new leaf. And they agreed to go to mediation, but only if the state um, met a list of conditions ahead of time. Um, and one of those conditions was that the state unfreeze those beds they're holding now just for people in jail. The state agreed to it, except they haven't confirmed to me that those beds are unfrozen. Okay, wait. So they've told lawyers one thing and you, Alice and Cherry, something else? <laughs> Yeah, that's what it looks like so far. The disability advocates are pretty annoyed, right? They they said they had a, a deal, the beds would be available for everyone immediately, and apparently they've been told that it's happened, but I'm waiting for the state to confirm that it's happened. Um, I also correspond with a doctor at Fort Logan back and forth, and she said there's been no sort of system-wide announcement that the beds are open to everyone. I should probably note here um, that Jared Polis, the governor, the governor, has yet to name a permanent head of the Department of Human Services. I think that's coming very soon. But it's one of the most difficult cabinet jobs, and it's taken him kind of a while to find the right person, so that's probably adding to all this confusion. Okay. Did the independent monitor give their thoughts on this whole bed policy? Yeah, yeah. They very strongly criticized it. They said that the decision to freeze beds to everyone except those in jail only funnels more people into the criminal justice system. In the report, they likened the decision to a family paying off all their debts with a high interest credit card. Is there anything else to note out of the independent monitor's report to the judge, this insight into how they view the state's handling of this? Yeah, I mean, I think the top line is that the state just needs to look at its overall system and figure out how to best meet the needs of these mentally ill people who get arrested, often for something small like trespassing or petty shoplifting or even a fight at a restaurant because they're having a psychotic episode, and treat them carefully, you know, There likely also needs to be some large-scale reforms to divert people from the criminal justice system into treatment, especially when the charges themselves are really minor. Like, does someone having a psychotic episode who's flailing around deserve a felony charge if they hit a paramedic who's transporting them? I think some of those bigger reforms need to probably take place at the legislature. Okay, finally, uh, while this is being debated and litigated, there are still, what, scores of people stuck in the situation in Colorado jails? There are, though the numbers are way lower. I need to say now than they were last summer, thanks in part, I think, because the state's doing all of this desperate stuff in this time of crisis. But there are still people in jail. And I should note that every time I do something on this topic, I hear from parents, mostly moms with kids in this situation, and they're just desperate for someone, the state, the judge, lawmakers, to do something. My cell phone's out there, and they're just texting me. These are moms whose kids are sitting in jail for long periods of time. Like, how long? I mean, Without I, being I talked to a mom whose son was sitting in uh, jail on the Western Slope for eight months. And this was this was this was like sort of at the end of last year. Oh. But it, it just kind of goes on and on. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. That's CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry. And she's been digging into problems with how the state handles mentally ill people awaiting trial. Agriculture is one of Colorado's biggest economic drivers, but farmers and ranchers are by no means immune to the challenges that their industry faces across the country. 
Let's talk about the people who grow our food with Kate Greenberg. She's Colorado's new commissioner of agriculture. She's the first woman in that post, and she's a farmer herself, although this job may mean more cubicle farms than she'd like. Hi, Kate. Hi there. You say agriculture is the second biggest economic driver in the state, but indeed there are challenges you want to tackle. So let's start with the big picture. Like, What does Colorado agriculture look like today? Well, as you mentioned, agriculture is among the top economic drivers in the state of Colorado. Uh, This is uh, done by folks who are less than 2% of the population, so the impact is immense. Um, And we have producers all across the state, corner to corner, from the eastern plains, the western slope, um, from urban and rural Colorado, who are growing food, uh, continuing the legacy of agriculture, and, and keeping their families on the land. And what are some of the pressures that they're facing today. Let's talk about the economic pressures, the environmental pressures, and even some of the demographic pressures. Well, you know, you mentioned some in the, in the introduction. Trade, of course, is a, a incredibly huge issue right now. Um, commodity prices, essentially the financial hurdles that farmers face um, every day uh, continue to be challenges. Uh, we face issues of ongoing drought and climate change, as you mentioned, that, you know, the impacts of those really come down first and foremost on farmers and ranchers who are dealing with the weather and, and changing climate um, and how it impacts their bottom line and their business. Uh, you know, kind the broader picture, too, is uh, the risk that we face in losing the next generation of farmers and ranchers. Uh, Farmers nationwide, uh, over 65, outnumber those under 35 by 6 to 1. We are, we do not have enough young people going into agriculture. And this is a problem not only for who will grow our food in the future, but how current farmers and ranchers uh, will be able to pass down their operations to the next generation. Let's unpack some of that. So with climate change, what specific effects are farmers feeling in Colorado? Well, for starters, irrigated agriculture in Colorado depends on the snowpack. Snowpack uh, becomes, uh, melts into water, and that water uh, irrigates the fields. Uh, Snowpack is changing. Uh, The timing uh, of melt is changing. Uh, So a lot of the irrigation management, uh, farmers are having to adapt. Uh, We are also uh, a couple decades into an ongoing drought. This, of course, poses huge challenges to farmers and ranchers across the board in terms of water access. Um, And, you know, we're just seeing more erratic weather events, hailstorms, wildfire, all kinds of uh, natural disasters that impact agriculture and impact farmers' bottom lines. I'm so glad you mentioned snowpack there because I think it's, it's for the first time, making a connection for me between snowpack and like soy milk. You know, I mean, all of that is so important to agriculture and to what is produced in Colorado. Uh, And yet farmers and ranchers don't universally embrace the idea of human-caused climate change, you know? Well, you know, I think no matter kind of where you're coming from, uh, the the bottom line is that farmers and ranchers are already stewarding natural resources. They are some of the most innovative, creative, resilient individuals. Uh, and and no matter, you know, kind of how you think about or believe in climate change, there are so many roles that agriculture can play in addressing uh, water scarcity, soil health, uh, food security. Uh, and, and so that's, that's really where we come at it, is that farmers and ranchers are at the helm in conservation um, and innovation, and that will be our goal, is to continue supporting that. Okay, so there's this six-to-one ratio of older to younger farmers Um, And owning and running a farm seems like a really 
expensive endeavor. So how do you get young people into this fraught field? Well, that's, it's a great question. It's an extremely important question. Uh, you know, I think in my previous life, uh, I, I worked with the National Young Farmers Coalition, and we asked ourselves this question mm-hmm. every day. Um, there are avenues through policy. Uh, there are avenues through uh, nonprofit organizations and, and education institutions. Um, you know, I think succession planning is a really key part of this, is how do we enable the existing generation of farmers and ranchers to have the option to pass their business, their land down to the next generation? generation. And, you know, that might not look like uh, it has in the past. Um, We're seeing a lot of younger people who come from farm families don't necessarily want to go back to the farm. And those farmers are left to to wonder, well, who, if not my kids, who will it be? Um, There, of course, are lots of kids who do want to go back to the family farm. But I think expanding what it would, what succession looks like, expanding the options, making it affordable to farm again, are all pieces of the solution. Well, that's fascinating. If succession doesn't look like me giving my farm to my kids, what would it look like? Well, an example there is a, a land link program. So um, we actually have this program in the state of Colorado, Colorado Land Link. Um, they, uh, you know, essentially connect landowners, farmers and ranchers with those seeking land. And, you know, this happens formally through organizations. It's happening informally through just relationships, communities talking to one another, saying, hey, you know, I've got a farm. I've got a business set up. The, the infrastructure is there, and I need someone that I get along with. Uh, and want to work my property to to come work with me, and and we go from there. So it's you know it's it's folks thinking outside the box, but really I think what weaves everyone together is the desire to keep family agriculture alive and thriving in Colorado, and seeking creative ways to do it. Yeah, it's almost like an apprenticeship for a per- certain period of time where they're working together. And then I think you talked about making the cost of farming itself just uh, more affordable. How, how do you begin to do that? Well, that's that's another big question. Uh, I mean, it really starts with land access and affordability. The price of land is pricing out young people okay. from agriculture. It's putting a, a, all kinds of pressure on existing farmers and ranchers who feel they they not, might not have an option other than to sell uh, their land um, outside of agriculture. So I think you know addressing that is is fundamental to. Uh, making farming affordable again. Um, there are, of course, other aspects of uh, financing a farm operation that need to be addressed to make sure that uh, it is a business that one can afford um, for their life and for their family. It is in the face of all of these challenges that I know mental health in particular is an issue among farmers and ranchers. And in fact, we've covered on this program uh, training mental health counselors on a hotline to deal specifically with the needs of rural Colorado. What do you see as your mandate, your responsibility in addressing that? Well, it's a great question, and it's something the department has been addressing, uh, beginning with my predecessor, Commissioner Don Brown. Uh, you know, the, the rate of farmer suicide is incredibly high. Uh, we here at the department have uh, a program that uh, we partnered with the Colorado Crisis Hotline, yeah. um, trained those crisis workers on how to engage with farmers and ranchers specifically, and have been doing all kinds of outreach to producers uh, to make sure they know that these resources are here, um, that if they're struggling, that's okay. 
um, and that there is a broad community here um, to support them. Of course, the hotline is confidential as well, um, so it's important for farmers to know that if they're struggling, they can take their struggles um, to someone who will hear them out and provide them with resources. So we take that seriously. I think this is something uh, we will remain committed to, to growing those resources for producers across the state. Do you know if they're using it? They are using it. We hear anecdotally from the crisis hotline they have received um, many more calls than prior to this program from oh. uh, the agricultural community. So we are, we're heartened to hear that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are meeting Colorado's new commissioner of agriculture. That's Kate Greenberg. And Kate, I'd like to get into a little bit of your background. So you're a farmer yourself. You spent formative years in rural Minnesota. And I've heard you say that you've always loved the land, but that it took some time for you to learn to love agriculture, um, which is an interesting distinction. What does that mean to you? Well, so just a clarification, I'm not currently farming. I was farming uh, before my previous work with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Um, Since that time, I've been uh, sort of a road warrior driving around to farms and ranches across the state and across the Intermountain West. You know, with regards to loving the land and loving agriculture, I wasn't raised on a farm. So I'm one of those um, who came to agriculture later in life, much like many, many people out there. Uh, And I think what changed for me was I realized once I left Minnesota and came west that I had been the beneficiary of the labor and work of farmers and ranchers uh, my whole life, eating three meals a day without having to worry about where they came from. And once I realized that, I realized that agriculture really is is the work of loving the land. And that's when I began to put my work into agriculture and into advocating for farmers and ranchers. You were at a certain period in your life an intern on a draft horse farm. Tell us what that is. Uh, draft horse uh, farm is, is a farm powered by draft horses. Um, I was an intern then, uh, uh, and the, the farm has since grown into a, a pretty incredible operation. Um, but it's, it's when you work with a team and, and cultivate your fields uh, with horsepower. And why do people opt for that over, I don't know, John Deere? Well, I think it's like most things in agriculture, each farmer and rancher has their own way of doing things, their own vision, their own desire for their business and the way they work the land. And this is just one of those many ways of doing it. What are the inherent politics in this? Because when you talk about climate change, when you talk about trade and tariffs and potential trade wars, Inevitably, the question arises about Democrats and Republicans and how one administration has handled this versus another. Um, Just talk to me about navigating that. Well, I think, you know, the way I see my post here at the Department of Ag agriculture is nonpartisan. And I, this is how we do our work. This is how I do my work. Um, we're here to support farmers and ranchers um, and the agriculture industry. Of course, we are weaving in and out of politics and all this. You can't, um, you can't take politics and policy out of agriculture, uh, much like anything in our world. Uh, but you know, where I come from is that this is nonpartisan, that regardless of your political beliefs that we share, uh, same, same goals and vision, and that's uh, supporting agriculture in the state of Colorado, supporting family farmers and ranchers, and, and continuing to be able to grow food and steward natural resources through agriculture. How much has the trade war with China hurt Colorado farmers and ranchers? And uh, what do you hope comes out of the upcoming talks between the two governments? I'll say that the 
Director of the White House's National Economic Council, Larry Kudlow, suggested that the U.S. and China were not close to a new trade pact. Uh, But what's your sense of how it's affecting things on the ground? Without a doubt, the trade war has impacted producers. It's it's been a big challenge, uh, kind of stacked on all the other challenges that that producers here are facing. You know, at the Department of Ag, we focus on market development for farmers and ranchers, with a focus on international market development as well. And and we're sort of buckling down on that regards, uh, seeing our responsibility uh, to producers across the state to make sure they have um, good, sufficient market access, um, despite what might be going on outside of our control. So that's that's really where we're moving, keeping fingers crossed that things move, um, that, that the pain points start going away for producers in the state, and we keep um, doing our role to, to alleviate that. Kate Greenberg is Colorado's new commissioner of agriculture. She has also been a farmer. Let's get your feedback in loud and clear. We heard from several folks on the Western Slope after our interview this week about youth suicide, which has hit the Grand Junction area hard. Our guest mentioned a lack of activities as a possible contributor. In Mesa County, there's no recreation center. She'd meant to say Grand Junction. Listener Rob Norris caught the mistake. He lives in Mesa County in Fruta, where there is quite a popular community center. As for Grand Junction, there will be a question on the ballot in April, Measure 2C, to raise the sales tax for a new community center at Matchett Park. The money would also improve fire stations and beef up police staffing. Here's something that we should fix or have a story you think we should cover. Find all the ways to reach us at cpr.org connect. All right, in our next half hour, the promise of space mining... This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Fixing Congress is a tall order, but something that Colorado might show one place to start. I think the United States Congress could use a gavel amendment. I'm Sam Brash, host of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. We have a new episode about one very important Colorado rule, that every bill gets a hearing and a vote. Bill 1031 passes. Bill 58 fails. What it's meant here and whether something like it could ever help that whole mess in D.C. Purplish, wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado just took a step towards a new kind of space exploration, space mining. Democrat Ed Perlmutter and Republican Scott Tipton introduced the Space Resources Institute Act. It directs NASA to consider an institute focused on this. The Colorado School of Mines is already taking a lead, though. This past fall, it became the first school in the world to offer a a graduate degree in space resources. Angel Abud Madrid is the program's director, and we spoke just before the semester started about this new frontier. Welcome to the program. Hello, Ryan. How are you? You envision mining asteroids, maybe mining on the moon. Just give us a sense of what's out there to harness that you're most interested in. People think about space mining, you know, metals and and minerals and water. But there's other things out there that are actually intangible about solar energy, 
to power your spacecraft for chemical processes? How about a vacuum or, or microgravity to process uh, new, new materials? So these are all the resources. There's even human-made resources in space. You know, all the debris and junk that we have thrown out for 50 years that can be recycled. And those are all resources uh, in space. Wait, how would you mine microgravity if, that's, if you consider that a resource? No, you don't actually mine it. What uh, what you do is that uh, there are certain processes that will benefit from not having the influence of gravity like we have here on Earth. Okay. So you can manufacture more uh, purest uh, type of products that you can use in space or even at some point uh, bring them uh, to Earth. There's actually a company doing that that type of, of work using 3D printing in the space station to produce this type of material. Fascinating. And that benefits from the low gravity environment. Correct. But let's get to the metals because I think that's what people often think of. Are there metals in space that you're interested in, that we as humans are interested in? Lots of it. <laughs> to the point that there's uh, uh, so many metals that, that uh, we will never run out of them in billions of years. Uh, and those mostly come from, from asteroids. Uh, asteroids are those uh, rocks that are flowing around in the, in the uh, solar system that have highly concentrated metals, like the, what, the ones we use here on Earth, iron, nickel, the platinum group metals. Uh, there's plenty of that. For an asteroid, for example, the size of the Colorado School of Mines, you have more platinum that has ever been mined and will ever be mined on Earth. But the interest, yes, you may think this is great, we can bring it to Earth, but ex- that's not exactly what we're going after at first. That will be probably way in the future. Indeed, you are interested in something that is perhaps a bit less sexy, which is water. Yes, H2O. Now, we have lots of water here. Why would you need it in space? Because water, uh, think of it as the oil of space. The oil of space. If you can break out water into hydrogen and oxygen, you have the highest and most energetic propellant known to humans. And so that uh, provides the energy for rockets to move around in the solar system so you don't have to bring it from Earth. And that is the whole point. What we're looking is for resources that you don't have to carry from Earth. We have been doing that for 60 years. And as you know from our exploring our, our planet, we do not carry everything with us everywhere, everywhere we go. We use resources where, where we find them. When you have to carry everything you need into space, it's really expensive, for one, because you've got to rocket that into space. That's payload. That's right. It's extremely energy intensive. Look at a rocket. 85% of that is fuel just to send anything into space. It it costs $4,000 a kilogram to put things in low Earth orbit. Multiply that by 10 if you want to have humans, and it's an extremely costly operation. And so if you could have space gas stations, if you will, you don't have to carry your own fuel. That is the whole point. If you can refuel in space, that will allow you to have larger rocket, larger payloads. You can go further. You can actually stay longer at uh, the lunar surface, even make it to Mars, which is right now quite a, a difficult task. Who owns these resources? So, you know, there might be a fight someday over water, but I could imagine nickel, for instance, being very valuable. Is that China's? Is that the United States? Is it the global communities? You've given thought to, who, to whom this belongs. That's, that's a great uh, point, and that's something that is also moving along with all the technical and scientific work. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 clearly says that no, the, the no celestial body is owned by a country. But uh, other than that, there's not very clear language in terms of can you 
not necessarily own the body, but extract the resource. Yeah. And so that was brought up again about six years ago, and there's a group at The Hague that is looking at building a legal framework of, of who owns it, how you can define, who can make the claims, how far away operations have to be from one another so that you can uh, do this type of, uh, of work. So there's definitely a, a, uh, a group that is composed of many, many countries, not just the spacefaring countries, but uh, all sorts of countries looking at how the legal uh, issues are going to be solved. But unanswered questions for sure in that realm. Will there be jobs in space resources once these people graduate? Are these young people, by the way, fresh out of high school, or are these professionals seeking to advance their education? Most of the people that have signed up for our courses are actually professionals. They're already working for space agencies, for aerospace companies, so they they already feel that this is an area they have to get educated so they can incorporate these systems in what they're doing. Although there is also uh, several young people right out of college that are quite interested in doing something like this. Would these potentially be astronauts or are these folks who sit behind a desk? No, these are people that may uh, just uh, design and put together the systems to make it happen. Okay. In the process, they will lower the cost of transportation. That will give you more access to people to space. And, but who knows? Some, uh, some may become astronauts at some point. I imagine that some of the allure for students is the chance to be in on the ground floor of a budding industry. How different would mining be in outer space from mining here on Earth? Do some of the practices translate or do we need new space bulldozers? That's what makes this area so exciting. Uh, students that are already working on uh, geology or geophysics of mining, they're trying to adapt the systems that we have developed for centuries here on Earth and try to apply that on different gravity environments, different pressure, different temperatures. But there's also uh, other objects like asteroids that do not have practically no gravity, that you have to come up with totally new systems on how to extract, for example, the water out of them that are not generally used here on Earth. Thank you for being with us. Dr. Angel Abud Madrid directs the Center for Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines. Just this week, Congressman Ed Perlmutter and Scott Tipton introduced the Space Resources Institute Act. It directs NASA to consider a new program focused on space mining. Now, the story of a second chance for a horse who may have been destined for one. Here's CPR's Vic Vela. At a stable in Fort Collins, I recently met a horse named Chance, as in second chance. Five years ago, he was living out what could have been his final days on a feedlot. So a feedlot is a place where horses that are unwanted go. They're usually from an auction or something of that sort. It's kind of like a dog shelter that's an only kill dog shelter. (laughs) This is Chance's owner, CSU student Cassidy Wepper. And then these horses, after so long being on the lot, they'll go, they load them up on a truck. And since it's not legal to slaughter a horse in the United States, they ship them to either Canada or Mexico. And then these horses are used for meat. Unless there's these great rescues like there are, all these horses are pretty much destined for the slaughterhouse. And that was Chance. And that was Chance, yep. Chance got lucky. He was picked up by an animal rescue group, and that's how Weber met him. He looks pretty rough. He just he was underweight, and his feet didn't look very good. But something about his face, something about just how he warmed up to me, how he didn't warm up to a lot of other people. I was like, ah, oh, you know, this $750 horse from the feedlot who... Looks like he's been through it. <laughs> this one just might be the one. So Weber bought Chance and gave him a new home. 
but the horse was in really rough shape. Colic is a kind of overall term used for horses' abdominal pain. And he had a couple colic episodes, um, ulcer-related, and they were pretty scary. He refused to drink water. He was laying on the ground just practically like practically not moving. And I had to get the vet out every time and banamine and drugs and the whole works to get him back up on four feet. And he eventually did. While Chance was healing, Weber became obsessed with finding out who this horse was. Feedlot horses often just come with a bill of sale and no history. But Chance had a tattoo on his lip that identified him as a racehorse. So Weber posted a picture of the tattoo in a Facebook group, and it turns out that Chance was registered through the American Quarter Horse Association. Weber got on the phone with a representative who started describing Chance to a T. And I was like, oh, I think that's, I'm pretty sure that's my horse. And then they went on and they told me so much. You know, I can't lie. I was in tears. And all my friends are making fun of me. That I was on the phone with her and she's like, yeah, he made $50,000 racing and his registered name is Louisiana Dan. And I was just so happy to finally know everything that I've been searching for for years. A friend of Weber's did some more digging and turned up an even bigger surprise. Chance is a great, great grandson of a legendary champion. And she's like, do you know who Seattle Slough is? I was like, yeah, I think Triple Crown, right? And I was she's like, yeah, Triple Crown. Um, so, then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Seattle Slough won the Kentucky Derby and Preakness and Belmont Stakes in 1977, and you would think that would give a horse like Chance more value, but he's one of many descendants of this famous racehorse, and they're not all winners. So, the lineage at some point stops, um, stops giving them value, and people more take them for the horse they are instead of the bloodlines they come from. And and like I said, yeah, he just he didn't look he didn't look like a winner. He didn't look like he came out of a triple crown winner. One of the reasons why former racehorses are often destined for slaughter is because it's hard for them to adapt to a world where they're not racing anymore. So even though Weber was excited to have chance and wanted to teach him tricks, she had to have patience. They're coming off the track and you know, they barely know how to trot and walk in circles and stop. They know how to run. And that's all they were trained to do. You know, you have to retrain them from the bottom up. And so then the next year, pretty much, I just, I let him grow into himself again. And I let him become the horse that he was meant to be, not this ball of stress and anxiety that he was when I got him. While Weber has given Chance a new life, the horse also gives back to his owner, Weber is studying biomedical sciences at CSU, and last semester's finals were just brutal. I had not slept in 48 hours, and as soon as I got out of my chemistry final, I drove straight here and just hung out and got on bareback and walked around, and that's all I needed. And it was more important to me than sleep. It was more beneficial to my life than sleep. So he's a healer. He is. He definitely is. And Weber says that love means a lot coming from a horse that was once on its last legs. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. Jazz artist Tia Fuller grew up in Aurora, the daughter of two musicians. Her first instrument was the piano, then the flute. But when her grandfather gave her a saxophone, Fuller knew she'd found her instrument. For one thing, it was loud, so much louder than a flute. She became infatuated with the saxophone, and now, years later, she's been nominated for a Grammy for Best Jazz Instrumental Album. 
This is from Fuller's album Diamond Cut. The Grammy Awards air Sunday night on CBS. Fuller spent several years as a member of Beyonce's touring band. She now lives near Boston and teaches at the Berklee College of Music. Tia Fuller, welcome and congratulations on the Grammy Nod. Thank you so much. I heard Diamond Cut for the first time on a cold, foggy day here in Denver, and I have to say, it was like someone had lit a fire in the fireplace. Even oh, though I don't, thank you. <laughs> even though I don't have a fireplace, that's how much it warmed <laughs> me. Where were, oh, thank you. You're so welcome. Where were you when you heard the news about the Grammy nomination? I was actually in my bed. It was like nine thirty-six in the morning, and I got a text from my publicist, and um. She basically uh, said, congratulations, in the text. And I was like, congratulations for what? And then the next text, she sent me a screenshot of the best jazz uh, instrumental album category. And um, my name was the first one on there. I think they have it listed alphabetical order, but it was Tia Fuller's Diamond Cut, Fred Hirsch, Brad Meldow, Joshua Redman, and Wayne Shorter. (laughs) And at that point, I just started, I erupted into tears. (laughs) of joy, of course. And then after that, I was crying so much. I had called Terry uh, Lynn Carrington, the producer of the album, and I was like, yeah. we did it, we did it, we got it. And she couldn't even understand what I was saying because I was crying. She was like, what happened, what happened? And I was like, we we got the Grammy. And she was like, oh, God, I thought somebody had died. Because <laughs> I, was, I was crying so profusely, so... I love that you just named all the other people who were nominated. There's something really generous about that. Oh, well, you know what's ironic is these are all people that I grew up listening to. And so to be in a category with them is, I mean, is honor (laughs) because they they are diamonds in the community. Like Joshua Redman, I remember transcribing some of his stuff. Of course, Wade Shorter, you know, Brad Meldow. I mean, all of these names are household names that I experienced growing up just learning this music. So, of course, I'm going to remember all of them because they've been like token names in the jazz world for a long time. So your album, Diamond Cut, as you said, was produced by Terry Lynn Carrington, who's a drummer. And it's interesting. She won the Grammy for Best Jazz Instrumental Album in 2014. Uh, your nomination makes you only the second woman ever to be nominated in the category. Yes. <laughs> what, is that, what does that say about the jazz world, do you think? Well, um, I mean, it's. Uh, I have uh, mixed feelings. More on the positive side, I'd like to say that they're coming around, and as far as hopefully it's changing the landscape, of what jazz looks like. Um, unfortunately, throughout the history of this music, many of the women have been lost, and it's it's been about his story, unfortunately. And a lot of women who have been on the precipice of this music um, haven't really gotten the acclaim or the shine or notoriety, such as like Mary Lou Williams. Um, she actually taught Dizzy Gillespie at Thelonious Monk and Lil Harden Armstrong, who was... Louis Armstrong's wife, and she was a great arranger and pianist, composer. So the list goes on and on. And just from a more historical standpoint, I'd like to say that this is um, a positive hit, uh, hopefully, toward the direction of the jazz world reflecting what it has always been, and that's women being an integral part of this music. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with jazz saxophonist and Aurora native Tia Fuller, who is nominated for a Grammy in the Best Jazz Instrumental Album category. Uh, Diamond Cut is your fifth album as a band leader. Uh, What were your goals before you started recording? For this album, I really, in my mind, this is something that Terry and I talked about, but is to really expand my territory and take it to the next level compositionally um, by doing multiple drafts of songs. And then I would kind of spot check it with her and see what she thought. And she would play me some examples of some other music and show how a melody, you know, develops. So that as well as surrounding myself around uh, the greats and really stepping outside of my comfort zone I've been playing with the same band for a long time, and sometimes you can get comfortable, even though I think there's a beauty in that because uh, we become an extension of each other. But I think by placing yourself amongst others who are masters, um, it kind of forces you to kind of play up to their level, or at least try to. (laughs) What's a good example of a track in which you feel you pushed the boundaries? Ooh, I think compositionally, probably... um, Fury of Demand. And as for getting out of your comfort zone with your fellow musicians, you enlisted, gosh, legendary bassist Dave Holland and on drums, Jack DeJohnette to plan about half the tracks. Yeah, yeah, it was half. For the most part, half and half. As I mentioned, you spent several years in Beyonce's touring band, and I wonder what you learned from that experience. I think the most important thing that I learned from her is, well, one, to learn how to function seamlessly as a as an artist, a businesswoman, a woman who has vision, and... Um, a performer, how to put a set list together, how to put a show together that's engaging the audience as well as really featuring band members. I mean, the list goes on and on how to dance in heels, <laughs> you know, without falling. <laughs> um, Wait, did you, is that true? You, you learned to dance in heels? I did. I really did. I think it, it's so much a part of my performance now that I can't, I don't feel like I'm actually playing a gig. I'm ready to play a gig until I have on my heels. Like if I had to play in in flats, I could, but it would almost feel like an outfit that I had on and I didn't have on lipstick or, you know, I didn't have on accessories. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Meanwhile, you're holding a saxophone, which isn't, you know, the easiest instrument to navigate. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's listen to another track from Diamond Cut. It's called Crowns of Grey, and I believe you wrote it for your parents. of Grey from the album Diamond Cut by saxophonist Tia Fuller, who grew up in Aurora. The album's up for a Grammy. Tia Fuller, tell me about your parents. 
My parents are amazing and beautiful, and I love them so much. <laughs> I mean, they, of course, as parents do, they laid the groundwork for me. They really were, um, they're both musicians. They're both educators. And so in the household, I remember Saturdays we would be cleaning the house, and my dad would have jazz pumping through the house. But then also, whenever we went on vacations, my mom would always say, make sure you get a book or get your workbook. You know, education was extremely valued in our household, but also music and and generally art. Um, my mom started off as an English and drama teacher before she moved into administration in the Denver Public School District. And as a result of that, I remember attending Denver Center Performing Arts plays to see Christmas Carol and uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and these were all things that we integrated that I grew up around the culture around art, not just music, but really respecting different forms of art. So I feel that that has laid a groundwork for me um, and, and, you know, my sister and my brother as to what is possible. So we have a family band called Fuller Sound. And yeah. uh, <laughs> let, let me just say that your sister Shami is, is also a jazz musician. I think she plays piano. Exactly. Shami is an amazing pianist. She actually recorded on my last two albums. And then my brother, Ashton, he's a great drummer. And he, he was on my first uh, self-produced album. But it's a definitely a household full of musicians. My brother-in-law, Rudy Royston, I mean, he's been a part of Fuller Sound uh, since Shami and he got married. So, yes, it's definitely running through the the veins and now as a result my niece and nephew Kobe and Kenya they are both excellent musicians as well as artists to what extent do you think your parents uh, in addition to just giving you a great education gave you the confidence that it takes to perform yeah. oh yeah my mom would always say Tia you have to go above and beyond the call of duty because not only are you a woman, but you're a woman of color and you're out here playing this instrument that is male dominated. And I remember, I mean, that wasn't just on the instrument that was taken all throughout my life. Uh, whenever I was studying for a test, whenever I was auditioning to be in a, in a dance troupe, whenever, I mean, whatever thing that I was working towards, she was always talking about, you have to go above and beyond the call of duty. And then my dad, I remember specifically, we would be on gigs uh, when I first started gigging with the band, and he he would be kind of yelling at me on stage, like, Tia, play, play. And so I'd be just, you know, playing and really kind of bearing down and trying to dig in. And I just reminded him of this as of recent, and and he couldn't even remember that he did it, but he was like, well, you know, I, I was really doing that because I didn't want you to be scared because I knew that you were a young lady playing this instrument and you were going to have to endure through some stuff. So I wanted you to not be scared when you got to your instrument. And one thing my dad would always say is once you put that horn in your mouth, you play like it's the last time you're ever going to play. Every time you get to your instrument, you play like it's the last time. Hmm. And it's funny because now I'm able to articulate that to my students because I've been reared that way. And I remember when I first moved out to New York, I told my parents, I was like, one day I'm going to be able to take care of you all because you have taken care of me all these years. And I'm able to give back because you've given so much to me. And I can honestly say that now I'm in a place that I'm able to do that. My dad's coming to the Grammys with me this weekend. And uh, my mom would be, but um, 
she's not able to. So that's a blessing in itself. Tia, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. What lovely notes to end the show on. Saxophonist Tia Fuller grew up in Aurora. Her latest album is called Diamond Cut, and it's nominated for a Grammy for Best Jazz Instrumental Album. The Grammy Awards air Sunday night on CBS. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner.